Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast, the first of a new weekly edition. The monthly shows uh, will continue, they're very much the the main thrust of the show, but in those intervening weeks I wanted to broaden the amount of people that I could have on and the type of people that I have on. So as well as still featuring politicians in these weekly interviews, I'll also feature advisors, journalists, academics and more. I'm delighted that on this first show, I'm joined by Theo Bertram. He worked for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in Number 10 and was really, among many other roles, uh, was there to coach them for Prime Minister's questions. And this is something we talk about in what is a hypnotic interview. I've just been to see The Darkest Hour this week and it was almost a new Labour version of that. Felt transported to a different time, different place. Theo has... He's, as you will gather from this, exceptional intellect, but wears it very lightly and has learned so many fascinating lessons in politics and can explain them very well. He's blessed with not only a great brain, but the ability to articulate very simply, as he sees that, I think, the rules and lessons of politics. So it's a wide-ranging discussion about what got him into politics as a person, but also about the things that he learned. And we get insider stories from every level of politics, from being effectively a a donor uh, in a very small way at the start of his life, to then uh, a member and then working for the party regionally, then nationally, and then into Downing Street. And in the end... Uh, why at the moment he has he has no real desire to go back. Uh, it's a brilliant interview. It was the hour flew by. There's so much in it. He's wonderful to listen to. Um, I also want to make the show more interactive. So there's an email address now. Five years in, and I've finally grasped that really it should be a weekly show, and I should make it interactive. Um, so there's an email address: politicalpartypodcast at gmail dot com. That's politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com just to carry on the conversation so any comments you've got any feedback on a guest if uh, the discussion with Theo sparks anything we can continue that we can pick it up in the next episode any requests comments questions whatever it is get in touch wherever you listen around the world and join in a bit more you can also tweet me at Matt Ford you can tweet Theo as well at Theo Bertram uh, I will leave it now uh, as always to the, to the main chunk of the show which is an interview with um so I'm just delighted to come on. Uh, very rare that you get an interview with, with Theo, so I'm, I'm delighted that, that he agreed to, to come on the show. And pr- brace yourself to be pr- transported right into the heart of government. Theo, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to have you here, uh, because I feel that in the modern era of politics, you're a kind of star of Twitter, in a way. You've mastered the medium, in a way, that oddly goes against the principles of it because it encourages brevity and yet your long stories on there which are very well cut down into tweet-sized chunks almost what people are really yearning for is is the detail and the insight that you rarely get on a website like that yeah i think people are interested in the minutiae of politics you know how things work um not not the broad kind of stuff that you get in biographies and autobiographies about people who were much more important than I ever was but the the kind of detail that you notice when you work in an office you know when you see your colleagues kind of little things that you see among your friends that kind of perspective on politics I think hasn't really had a really strong voice and um and anyway I just started writing little things that I could remember about I remember when we were in the trenches doing this and and I found that people liked them, and they hated all my other tweets. And I get <laughs> feedback saying, "Don't tweet that." And then, um, and the thing that really kind of made me think I should keep doing this was uh, the people I used to work with, the colleagues who are, you know, who are really respected and liked, and even some of the MPs and ministers said, "You know, I really enjoy reading your stories. It's uh, it's good to read." So I ended up just doing more of it, and I quite like it. 
You, I mean, I, I've pestered you a few times, but I really think you should write a book. But a book is really quite long. And Twitter <laughs> characters, I mean, there's 280 now, but there was 140. And still, you know, it, that adds up to a, a lot of uh, tweets before it becomes a book. And I don't know, there's, I quite like the Twitter format. I quite like the fact that it allows people to engage with every single line. And sometimes, you know, they're really critical about what I've written. And sometimes they're really enthusiastic. And, and I don't think you get that when you write a novel. And I also think the stuff I write, in a, in a way, is, you know, um, it's sometimes it's just a, it's a bit frothy or it's just a bit, you know, it, it's very short sometimes, little bites of stuff. And maybe that would be, I don't know if you could sustain that over an entire book, but maybe a, a collection of anecdotes at some point is, is possible. I'm sure it is. If you want to follow Theo, you can do that on Twitter, at Theo Bertram. We'll give that out uh, again at the end. But let's start at the beginning. What, what was it that made you want to go into politics in the first place? Well, really sadly, uh, I was a kind of I, I was into politics as a kid. The very first check, um, and this shows how old I was that I was writing checks. But <laughs> the very first check I ever wrote was to the Labour Party to become a member. So, what, you, what year was that, and how old were you? It was. It would have been ninety-two, and then, and I think I would have been seventeen. And okay. um, the reason was was obvious, which was we'd lost again, and uh, you know both my parents uh, were Labour Party supporters and were teachers and. Um, I'd, I'd grown up in a household that you know, was a bit like Adrian Mole, you know, where we would complain about Thatcher and the Falklands. And I was passionate. Measuring yourself. Yeah, and, I, and, and that, that's kind of, you know, that, that was the kind of environment I grew up in. Like, and there was never any question of supporting the Tories. And, um, and I couldn't believe it when we lost in 92 because I was mm. convinced, as everyone else was, that, that Labour were going to win. And, and I felt, well, what can I do about this? And my auntie said, well, you should just join join the party. And actually, so that's when I joined. I didn't do anything else after that. I didn't do anything else for years after that, but I just joined the party. So you joined 17 years old in 92, and then what What was your first job in politics, or what was the first thing when you... when you What made you think you wanted to work in it? So I, I, I was... I'd moved to Bristol, and I was... Uh, I didn't really know anyone in that city. I had quite a tough time in the first uh, year that I was there. In the university? Uh, no, I finished university. I was, I was doing a PhD, so... Uh, wow. On, on uh, Samuel Beckett, so something completely different. My word. Dr. Bertram, I had no idea. Yeah, I'm ashamed. <laughs> uh, and, um, and what I, I mean, I, I love doing the research, and I, and I, you know, I love reading books, and, and, uh, but I felt that it was taking me, you know, I was spending my time talking to fewer and fewer people about more arcane things. <laughs> And um, and I kind of fell out of love with it. And at the same time, I was living in this terrible um, place. Um, you know, that I was on the ground floor of um, a, a, a. You know, I decided that I should live on my own rather than a flat share or anything like that, which was probably a mistake. And, and um, the guy across the, I shared a bathroom and a kitchen with this guy, and uh, he was a, a methadone user, and he'd been very unlucky in lots of things. Um, and um, but he would fill the bath between us with car parts because he used to be a welder and that was his thing. And so I didn't have a bath and I didn't have really oh, a man. kitchen either because he set that on fire. <laughs> and I thought I've got to get out of this, but I didn't have any money. I didn't. And um, and and for some reason, somewhere inside me thought I'll start going to Labour Party meetings because that will be where I will see middle class people who can kind of who who want to you know change and make the world a better place. And I went to these meetings and it was the kind of now, this wasn't the Corbyn era. I went to a, a Labour Party meeting. There were five people there, and um, you know, and uh, after the first, they were shocked to see me. Yeah. You know, no one else in that meeting was uh, was under sixty, and they'd all been in, in those meetings for years. And after that meeting, they made me branch secretary, and then <laughs> uh, and I started writing stuff for the MP. So she had the newsletter. I started writing that, and then she gave me a bit more work to do. And then and then um, the regional. Uh, party had a post and um, and they asked me if I wanted to do it and it just coincided with me getting to the end of the PhD and so um, it was it was a really exciting opportunity it was working for uh, the Labour Party in the South West and the thing that was really exciting was there was a, a candidate who'd been selected in Gloucester called Panjit Danda for the Labour Party and uh, he was a Sikh um, and uh, there was I think two other Sikh families in the town and um, there was no uh, large ethnic minority population in the town. It would be one of the first places in Britain where we elected 
an ethnic minority MP um, without there being a significant ethnic minority vote. And the Tories were really aggressively running a campaign that was quite... Um, you know, I'm not going to go as far as saying it was racist, but you know, there were, it, it, it wasn't nice. You know, they yeah. were driving around in Land Rovers, waving Union Jack flags. Lots of the rhetoric that, that UKIP would claim now. Yes. And the local newspaper, most astonishingly, ran an editorial that said uh, that Gloucester was not ready for a foreigner. And that was the local newspaper. And this is what, 97 or 2000? This is 2000. 2001. This is 2000. Yeah, just 2001, 2001. Wow. And, um, and the, uh, uh, and, you know, obviously, um, they then justified this by saying that when they said foreigner, they meant not from round here. <laughs> oh, please. Um, and actually, the more you got to know Gloucester and Forest of Dean, you realised that actually they both hated each other and the prospect of anyone coming from either of those places was probably worse than any other type of foreigner. But, um, but yeah, it, it, so that was a challenge and it, that was just a terrific thing to work on. An election campaign is a great thing to work on because it's such a clear end and it's also such a good thing to work for, the sense of working for a cause that you believe in. Easily kind of, you know, it's, 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 there isn't really anything that compares to it. Um, it's... It's such a motivating factor. It's such an easy thing to do when you can get up and know that you're fighting for something you believe in. So this is the 2001 campaign. This is foot and mouth, uh, an election that was delayed. But this is Blair really at the peak of his popularity. You were going to end up working for him really not that long after that election. At that point, did you think, I'll end up in Downing Street? Did you want to end up in Downing Street? No, I don't think... I, I, I certainly didn't think this is... this. Um, I, I had no idea where my career was uh, going, I didn't have a sense of a career at all, and the idea of like where will you be in five years' time, um, I, I had no answer to that question. Um, I, I always just found that I did what I did, and and then the next opportunity came up, and I took that, and yeah. it just happened that way. So I, I, I campaigned for Parnchit, we won that seat. He became an MP in Parliament, um, and said, "I need a researcher. Um, do you want to come and be my researcher?" I didn't know what a researcher was, but that sounded like good fun and yeah. and lots of my mates were in London so I, I went and did that and I worked for him for a couple of years there. And was that in Port Cullis House? We were in Normanshaw North. So it's oh crikey, the, the back end. Yeah and when we, you know, he was very far from the centre of things um, when we first arrived, uh, both lit, both literally and, uh, <laughs> and figuratively. Uh, but he, he became a minister uh, in time, sometime after I left. But, uh, yeah, he was, he, he's a great guy. Uh, but even in that part of the building, there's magic, isn't there? Even in that, if you've never been there before, even in Norman, the Norman Shaw part of the building, there, you get a sense that something's happening. Well, I mean, there is magic everywhere. And, and then, um, but I'm, I've always, you know, I, the truth is I've always hated the, the, the magic around uh, politics the west wing has never been my cup of tea the kind no. of saccharine view of the world and actually it's kind of the pragmatic you know the, the so much of politics is what we used to call the politics of the photocopier and the you know which is how many photocopies are you bringing into the room because if you've got if you've got one for everyone then you genuinely want everyone to discuss it and if you've got you're gonna have to share you're already making decisions about how that meeting's going to be run and if you don't bring any photocopies at all well you know you know what's going to happen before yeah. the meeting starts but yeah, the, your physical position in uh, in Parliament is the very first uh, step that determines what's going to happen for for an MP's career in some ways, and and it's a real measure. I mean, you can see each time there's a new Parliament where you know they all move and they all want to get slightly closer. But if you're, you know, it's the seven or eight minutes that you've got between the bell ringing to get to the point where you have to vote, and if you're in Norman Shaw North, you just permanently on tenterhooks that you can have to at any minute drop and run to the other to the you know it's going to take you eight minutes to get there uh, so you learn all of the nooks and crannies of where are the the bits where you can kind of go underground and sneak through the kitchen and all of those things ironically it's the part of the building probably closest to downing street it is yeah it's just around the back near the red lion it's that sort of part it is yeah and it, uh, often it would be the way that we might come in for pmqs so later on when i would come with with uh, uh, with Gordon, you know, he would always be... They all, I, don't, I don't think I'm giving any way state secrets here because, you know, they have to go from Downing Street to Parliament. There aren't that many ways to do it. But actually, they try and vary as many of the different routes they can take as possible. Um, For security reasons? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, 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 and what I found was that, you know, I then kind of would come in and i go, oh, I know this old route because I know this little kind of path underneath the, the commons. And, you know, 
I'm fascinated by, and this is entirely a quirk of mine that's nothing to do with politics, I'm fascinated by underground London. Yes. And if you work any length of time in Westminster, uh, it, it's, it's just fascinating to think of what lies beneath that place. But there are so many different rat runs. You can be wandering down those halls and bump into a minister who's being guided by someone on a, another secret path and you just follow them and go, right, they must be going somewhere and I'm going to follow them and then I know where this path goes for the next time. But all of that stuff is such useful, you know, so many of the practical things you learn as you work your way up become really valuable in the future because that thing of the politics of the photocopy and how do you get from here to there in time how do you get, you've had this conversation with this person, you need to get to that person before they do and be able to kind of run down and, and do that or knowing where you can get mobile signal um, all of those things become kind of critical moments in, in political theatre. That's a big part of the job. Another part of, of working for a political party is what a former colleague of mine used to call black ops, which is the skullduggery, not just internally, but a lot of it externally as well. And some of your stories have dealt with this, you know, re- recording Tory MP secret tapes were very much in vogue in the period that you were working for the party. What always struck me, even in the lowly position that I had, was that what was great about working for the party at times was you could end up doing anything at any one point, particularly during conference week where you just get accosted to either record something or accompany the prime minister or whatever it was. You, you, everyone was you were drawn from a pool to, to do anything. So were there any missions you got sent on or dirty deeds? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I worked for a whole, um, well, for at least a couple of years in um, in one of the teams that was just dedicated to doing that kind of opposition research. Now, we like to think of ourselves as not being the kind of the men who go rake through your bins or kind of dirty or black ops. Um, but we were thorough and, and, and we were we hounded Tory MPs for, for years. Uh, and it was a real feature of the 2005 campaign. Um, but I've done all sorts of things in that guise. And some of them um, have been uh, quite hairy moments. Uh, I can remember... I can remember a Tory conference. Um, this would have been the, probably the last Tory conference before uh, Cameron... No, in fact, it would have been the, the Tory conference where Cameron became leader. Okay. Or, or hadn't yet become leader, but gave the speech that everyone said, oh, yes. he's going to become yeah. leader, right? Now, prior to that, everyone was focused on Fox and Davis. And um, I had this great fortune. I mean, you know, my career has often just been... Has, had steps that have gone forward have just been because of just being in the right place at the right time and um, that summer the luck was that I drew David Cameron the person to research and so when it came to a conference I was focused on David Cameron I knew everything about him I'd read every single everything he'd ever written whether it was in a parish magazine student newspaper everything I knew which foot his uh, wife had her uh, dolphin tattoo on what she claimed to have uh, uh, done with Tricky which was only playing pool. And, you know, <laughs> so I knew all, I knew everything. And I also knew that Osborne would be his pick. Mm. And so I went to this conference, I think it was Blackpool, and there was George Osborne in conversation with Will Hutton. And no one went except for me. And there was George Osborne, Will Hutton, George Osborne's researcher, and Will Hutton's assistant. And we were in this church hall. And, and I was kind of sitting there waiting, and I had... A tape. I had a little. We used to call the magic beam, which was a tiny little device, um, which has a recording device on it. You slip it into your top pocket. And these days, you could just do it with your mobile phone. Yeah. And I'd switch it on. I sat there <laughs> at the front, waiting for him to come in, expecting the room to fill up, and um, and no one came. And so, Will Hutton um, bravely kind of said, "Well, we'll just carry on. Let's all pull the seats round." Oh no. And, um, Osborne pulled his seat in and they each pulled their seat in and I was sitting in a group of five people, the people who had organised the event, George Osborne and me from the Labour Party <laughs> who was there to secretly record it. And, um, and, I, and there was a really awkward bit where um, Will Hutton said, well, look, let's just keep this really informal. We'll just have a chat and um, uh, let's, let's introduce ourselves. And they went round the... the, the the table there went there was no table we were just sitting there we were, it went round and each person introduced themselves and I thought when it came to me what am I going to say because yeah. like I'm not going to say I'm here from the Labour Party um, so and, and I didn't want to lie either and so I just said nothing 
and just sat there and they all looked at me and I thought it's probably better if I just look like I'm really quite shy and embarrassed which was quite an easy look to give at that moment because (laughs) I was slightly mortified (laughs) and there was an awkward pause that you know any short pause when people are listening is really painful even if it's just for a few seconds yeah and then they just carried on and they and Osborne presumably because he thought he was talking to Will Hutton with some weird little Tory guy listening (laughs) then detailed a whole range of what would be the economic uh, platform for a Cameron government and we got that on tape and we used it repeatedly um, after that Uh, but it was a public meeting there there was nothing wrong with me uh, recording it it wasn't like I was recording a private conversation between Osborne and Hutton it was public advertised meeting talking about you know the future of Tory policy so there were moments like that another time that I remember was you know because it was a kind of rite of passage in the in the attack yeah. team that you had to record someone on on tape and so that was the attack was a form of rapid rebuttal unit yeah which but, effectively rebranded or yeah I mean this was you know we did uh, we were called um uh we called uh, opposition research and rebuttal or something like that um, and um, and this was a time when Tory cabinet ministers or shadow cabinet ministers rather would be going around and giving lots of these uh, speeches um, to think tanks and Tory groups and they just seemed to have no sense that anyone was listening but the people in the room yeah. or that they should ever say something publicly that they weren't it wasn't actually their policy and um i remember there was one time when i needed to go and i needed to go and record letwin and letwin was um he was speaking at um the adam street private members club all right so it was a public meeting but in a private members club and um and i, and I got to the uh, the venue and it was pouring with rain and i could see that as people going in they were buzzing and then they were giving their name to go in and i hadn't given my name i thought right i can't just walk into this one and um i'd stood there for a bit and it was kind of pouring with rain i thought i can't like hang around here looking for a opportunity to nip in through the door behind someone that, that this is not going to work like no. that and then i thought i can't go back to the the team and and say i didn't get in i'm going to need to try and while i was going through this um this thought process um standing there with my umbrella outside the uh, the front door and um, this big black car pulls up and uh, Oliver Letwin, I can see, is on the back seat. And so I lean over and open the back door, <laughs> and uh, I say, um, uh, 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 "Mr. Letwin, welcome." <laughs> and um, uh, and I open my umbrella uh, to, to shield him from the rain. And he handed me his briefcase and all his papers and his jacket. And um, I walked up to the buzzer and I pressed the buzzer and I said, uh, "I think I think I might call him Doctor Letwin. Doctor Letwin's here." And I opened the door and whisked me in straight after him and not only did I record his speech but I sat there with his copy of his speech with his notes uh, while he while he read it because he just left them with me assuming I was oh the, my word I was the assistant so you know there, there were times where it's it's been um, it's been hairy but uh, but it, but um, but we'd never recorded anyone privately no. and uh, we didn't do muckraking we were just catching these people saying to one audience, something that you know, we were just making sure that the rest of the world heard. But what's crucial about the ability to get into those things is appearing calm and confident and not shifty. I remember going undercover in 2007, I think. I was working out of the Northwest Regional Office and me and Gregor Poynton got sent to um, the Tory Spring Conference in, in Manchester, the Midland Hotel, so I'd done a vague... I thought, I know what our conferences are like. So I printed off a fake conference. You get all the stuff off the website, all the all the agendas and things, just print off a load of paper, dress like a Tory and look fairly confident. And I always thought the best way to blag your way into anything is to say that you've already been in, you're going back in, you just push your way to the front of the queue and say, yeah, just coming back in, I, I came... You just create confusion. As long as you walk quickly and with purpose, people aren't going to stop you. We got away into the leaders' reception. We met Osborne and we met Osborne, Maud, we met Cameron, and we. The whole thing was there was going to be a. Uh, the Tories were going to do a walkabout in Manchester, and 
we wanted to know where it was going to be. So I'm constantly going up to these young toys that are like, where's this walkabout tomorrow, old chap? You know, no one knew. And it was... Francis Moore told me, I said, oh, where's the meeting time? He said, oh, it's two o'clock around the back of the GMX. <laughs> so we went into the office the following day saying, right, we know where it is. Well, they said, who told you? Oh, Francis Moore actually <laughs> told us. We got pictures with Cameron and with Osborne. But there was this, there was this awful chilling moment. Because obviously, you've, people, st- if they don't recognise you, they would definitely come up to you and talk to you and say, oh, what's your story? So we had a backstory. We did, we had fake names. We'd set up a PR company in Nottingham and all this sort of thing. And, um... Benedict Brogan from the Daily Mail comes over and introduces himself and says, oh, you guys uh, haven't seen you around here before? And I was like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> and I think Gregor didn't realise who it was. I was like, oh, man, we're in deep trouble here. And he introduces us to this girl and says, you don't want to talk to her. She's a mole. I thought, <laughs> oh, we've been absolutely done here. I said, you've got to be kidding. I said, whereabouts are you, mole? She went, head office, Labour head office. I've infiltrated Labour head office. I said, crikey. I said, well, what's your, how have you managed to pull this off? She went, I just asked for a, I can't remember what unit she was working in, whatever. So the following day, we obviously went back. I'd convinced them to let us go back. I said, I've got to go back a second night, because you never know what we'll find out. Just an excuse to go there and like drink champagne and <laughs> look at a load of Tories. It's just the thrill of knowing that you're not meant to be there. And they found her. She was booted out. It was like an all-staff email from... I think yeah, it was I Alicia Kennedy back then saying... We had a, when was, so when was that that you were doing? I don't know, in 2007, I think. Or to the, it was, I think it was on the local elections in 2000... And, oh, no, maybe 2006. I think what? it was 2006. Well, we had, a, we had a mole in the 2005 campaign, but she was working in media monitoring, and the job of media monitoring is to put your headphones on and listen to this wall of, of uh, radio you know, and, and uh, video players... So she was in the office where everyone was there, you know, um, Mandelson and Campbell and everyone else, and and but she got hardly anything from it. And um, yeah, eventually we, we we worked out who it was. And I remember when we were waiting for that Channel Four documentary to come out, um, and they had nothing. But uh, but it is remarkably, you know, look, political parties are in some ways not that professional organisations. Yes, they're. They're, the core of them is built on um, voluntary uh, work, and and that's a good thing in a way. And you know, party conferences are probably the most secure they get. Maybe their head offices, but most of the things that ministers and other people do around the country, even prime ministers, is is often just open to people to walk in. And that's quite a good thing. Yeah. Um, and they shouldn't really be afraid of that. It's only if they're saying something to one group that they're not saying to another. That's where it gets tricky. Um, you mentioned promises. You work for two of them. Yeah. So you first get the job for Tony Blair as a special advisor. I mean, there must at that point you must think, "Wow, I've I've done quite well." Well, all the way, th- at every point that I've ever worked for the Labour Party, I've always thought that. To be honest, yeah. I've always thought at some point someone's going to come and say, oh, "Hold on, what are you doing here?" <laughs> um, and uh, at every point, I thought this is this is terrific. This is this is my dream job, and yeah. that was that was from when I first worked in Gloucester to working uh, for an MP, working at the party, uh, and then in number 10. And, yeah, uh, you know, walking through the gates of number 10, going up to the front door, that never is not you know, incredibly exciting. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm as cynical as anyone else in politics, and I've walked through that door a lot of times, but um, it's still something, something amazing about, uh, about working in politics at any level. And what was your relationship with, with Blair like? How much access did you have to him? So with Blair, I came in as, as a quite a junior special advisor. And um, my role you know, was that because I knew all of this stuff about David Cameron, and you know, I really got to a, a, you know, a good understanding of the Cameron Conservatives, that what started to happen was when he was preparing for PMQs, someone would call me from uh, number 10 and say, can you tell us what the answer to there is to this? Can you tell us what the answer to this? And I was just feeding them. And so then at some point it was like, well, can you just come and do that in the office? Brilliant. And, um, Brilliant. And, and that's kind of how I got my, 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 my toehold into, into that was I was just a person that knew, you know, what, what, not just what the policy was, but probably what the approach would be in terms of their political thinking and, and working out kind of what we could say in, in response. And then I worked with some really great people there and I also found that I quite liked starting to, um, you know, write the lines. We never yeah. called them jokes. They were always lines. Yeah. Um, and he had some great people doing that for him. Um, 
uh, and but you know when you got one of what yours used in PMQs, that was always a wow. That, w- that was always great. What um, was your first? Do you remember? I can't. I can remember. I can't. I can't actually. I can't remember. Um, but I can remember him coming and congratulating me afterwards and saying that was that was terrific. Um, and then just kind of reliving the moment. It was like <laughs> you know when a footballer comes off. And kind of says, you know, you told me to go, oh, I just did that, I chipped it in this way, it went straight in, and you're like, yeah. Uh, so it, it, so that, that was great. And I can remember another time where he just, um, uh, he, he, actually I can remember another time we just came down and just said, he, there was, we had a big screen in our room for watching the news on. He just came down with a bottle of wine, just like, watching the football? And I was like, great, you know, this is, um, and he just joined us. Um, but, um, but yeah. Uh, uh, we, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't his his first person to go to on anything. Um, I was uh, the junior person in the team, but I gradually built up my usefulness um, around PMQs. And the other thing I, I really did while working for him was I was the person that would go from number ten to brief ministers and cabinet ministers before they did question time or any questions or any wow. other difficult interview. And I, my job was to kind of have all of these facts on every issue. And my job was to kind of say that, you know, they don't tell you in advance what the questions are going to be, but you usually can got a pretty good idea based on who they put on the panel. Yeah. And uh, so I would go and brief these ministers and I would say, you know, this is what the government line is. You've got these people there. And the thing that, that I think I was quite good at um, was understanding that no one in politics um, ever wants to say, I don't know. Yeah. And when you've got ministers or cabinet ministers about to go on a TV programme, like, no one ever wants to look like they're not really smart in politics. They all yeah. want to look like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Everyone <laughs> wants to be part of the club. And, and actually saying, you know, it's so rare that you've got a minister who said, I don't know anything about this at all. Please tell me you know, what I should do or what I should say or what's the background to this issue. Tell me everything. And so... I would always just start with the assumption that you know they don't know anything, and then they'd quickly put you up to speed, and then you have to try and make it so that the lines they're using are their own, not um, not just a thing that's been regurgitated to them by some uh, uh, some uh, some number ten special advisor. But the rigor in that standard of work, particularly the the rigor that went into promises questions, the research on Cameron, that encyclopedic knowledge that you chose to build up and then was an asset to to the party and to a Prime Minister. When I watch PMQs now, I'm not entirely convinced that the same rigour there is is there on either side. It is. It is. Um, um, It's definitely there on the government side. Um, The process for PMQs is still the same. Um, The difficulty is in, in getting the the detail of the information that you've got and turning that into something that's meaningful in in PMQs. And what's meaningful in PMQs, the government is just defending themselves against the questions, showing that they're competent. But for the opposition, it's really, can you get that 10-second slot on the on the 10 o'clock news where you land a blow? And that is a, that's a difficult skill, but it's also, you know... It, it, that's always going to be unique to each individual leader. The way that Tony did PMQs to Gordon does PMQs to the way that Corbyn does it now, each of those is different and it wouldn't be right for each of them to try and do it in the way that the other one did. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In terms of, it's an interesting point, thinking about the 10 o'clock news, for now, it's social media, it's it's sharing that clip and getting it clipped to as quickly as possible and, and getting it viral. Because of the way that people's consumption of news has changed, the pressure's still the same, it's to get that soundbite. But in a way, they're more in control of that now than they were 
back even in your day, which wasn't that long ago. I think that's partly right, but I also think that we have so much information, so much data in our lives. We spend so much of our time, you know, it used to be that you just flick through the channel looking for the thing that you want, and now you're just scrolling through reams of stuff <laughs> that you don't want to read. And how does politics, let alone an individual politician, let alone an individual idea, find the place in our lives where it resonates with us is much more difficult. And I think partly that's why um, Trump has been a success. Partly that's why Corbyn's success is that it's really hard to reach people. Um, there's so much information. Um, and you know, the fact that they sometimes do so with such blunt tools or with such emotional force, forcefulness in a way that you know the nuance or the complex arguments or the kind of lawyerly debating skills that you got from Tony Blair, the kind of long drawn out you know, economic arguments that Gordon would pound on. Yeah, yeah. And you, you don't have that uh, luxury in a way anymore. You've got a small chance to catch someone's attention and actually, you know, emotion or you know, simplicity or anger or, or some of the traits that we see in both Corbyn and Trump are the only way you're going to get to reach people. In terms of the way politics has gone, a lot of people on on your side, on my side of politics, are in despair, a lot of them in retreat and feel like they don't understand the political world in which we live in, not just Corbyn and Trump, but Brexit as well. They feel that um, their political position is unrepresented in Parliament, uh, certainly in the leaderships of the parties. What's your view on it? Do you Do you despair about the times in which we live, or do you think people will return to their senses if indeed you think they have lost their senses? Um, well, there's a lot of different questions there. <laughs> this is such a politician's answer. And I'm going to pick one of them, <laughs> the one that I want to answer. No, I think... Um, like, I think it's been a miserable um, couple of years for people who believe in Europe, people who believe in um, you know, modern, uh, progressive, social democratic politics... Um, for people who would rather Trump wasn't in the White House. Um, but I don't think there's cause to despair. And I don't think that politics entirely moves in a pendulum-like way. It's war one way and then all the next. I do think that there is a gradual progress. And if you take something like, um, you know, if you look at uh, gay rights or if you look at the minimum wage, these if the, if the world was just a, a one of, of pendulum politics, they, they would come and they would go. And actually what we see is progress. So I don't have such a despairing view of the world. I am more of an optimist. But I don't know what's going on in politics. I feel like I don't understand it right now. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think starting off by saying you don't understand where things are is probably the, the first point. And, you know, so many of the uh, condemnations and criticisms of both Trump and Corbyn seem to start from the point of view that um, people are judging them on the same rules of which we apply yes. to Blair or Brown. And, you know, this is a totally different age of politics. Um, and the way we things, the way we did things with New Labour would not work today. Um, and I think there's another thing about both of them, which is they are the outsiders. Yeah. And they really champion that. And actually, that means that they are a threat to those of us who've worked in, in politics because we see them as these people are on the outside. You know, they, they don't understand where what's happening. They don't understand how this should have always worked. And to set yourself against them um, in that way, I think, is wrong. Um, and I think you know, understanding what's driving um, the people who are voting for them is key to working out well, you know, what's going to be best for the future, for the country, for the people. Um, I think, you know, I have worries about the direction the Labour Party is taking... Actually, not many of those are policy. I mean, if you look at the last manifesto, it's not really that radical. It's not really some, you know, it's not a communist agenda. Um, the things I worry more about are um, things um, integral to the party itself. Now, I worry about um, some of the people that have come back into the party. I worry about um, the way we're handling uh, anti-Semitism. I worry about some of those... Um, some of the some of the, some of the ways in which the party is uh, obsessed with itself and obsessed with um, and, and the way it's rewriting history in ways that are clearly wrong. But you know, but Corbyn is an outsider; he's doing it in a different way. Um, I don't think we should 
despair or be scared by that. The agenda at the last election was relatively moderate. Um, it, you know, let's see where this goes. And I, but I do think that the idea that we are going to become a party where you can only really belong, you can only be an MP if you are prepared to kneel and, and pledge devotion to the divine leader, you know, that seems to me to be bonkers. I mean, and that isn't, you know, whether he was on the right or the left, that would seem bonkers, you know. We are a broad church, and, and I don't like that aspect of the party at the moment. Um, but I'm not in despair. I think, uh, I think in a way, the, the funny thing is, I think if Corbyn was really successful, if Corbyn becomes prime minister and carries on as prime minister for 10 years, then that is when those of us who kind of feel you don't understand what it was like to be a new Labour or what we achieved will suddenly be, will have our uh, reappraisal because it's only when you've been in government that you'll understand what the difficulties are. Yeah. And the truth is Corbyn is fighting a different battle to the ones that we fought in the previous elections. And, um, you know, and, and it would be fascinating to see how difficult it would be for momentum and for many of the people that are supporting him when we get to the point where if we get to the point where we're in government and delivering on those um, promises, I mean, look at Brexit. It's really not clear what the Labour Party's position is. Yeah. You know, how do you keep everyone happy when it's no longer just a you know a, a ten second clip on Twitter, but actually what government policy is, and and how do you make match all of those commitments? So, you know, I think some of what he's trying to do is is um, radical, but the radical bits seem to be around the party rather than around policy. And I think where there's opposition, uh, genuine opposition on, on policy grounds, most of it is around um, foreign policy or defence, but it's specific areas where previous prime, previous prime ministers or leaders of the Labour Party have had differences with their own party members and, and, and party uh, MPs. Um, but, um, uh, but So I don't think Corbyn is that far away. It's just more the handling of things, the, the desire to... You know, to purge the party of people who disagree with him is, is quite worrying. What seems to really perplex people is how do you campaign against people like Trump and internally against people like Corbyn? Because there is a perception that the more, for instance, take the Labour Party, you know, the more Tony Blair campaigns against Corbyn, the stronger he becomes. How do you campaign against someone effectively where there is some truth in that, isn't there? That the, the more you attack them, actually, the, the stronger they get. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's definitely what we've seen as well. And I think whether you look at um, whether you look at what many people on my side of the party have said about Tony, uh, said about Corbyn, including Tony, or whether you look at what the Tories are saying about him, it's clear no one has really learned what it is to criticise him uh, and, and to do so effectively. Um, everyone was criticising him prior to the last election, and it seemed to work out rather well for him. And I think you know the. the the way that Trump and Corbyn are running are as outsiders, and therefore, the more you criticise him in that way, it does look like you're just reaffirming this guy doesn't stand for what you stand for, and he's not going to do th things in the way that you, you've done things. But I think, you know, what's well, I would worry that the Trump precedent shows that the trouble is that while that is a way to campaign, it's not a way to govern, mm. and that when you get in, it's a lot harder. And, um, but, you know, I'm sure if Corbyn won the next election, he'd have a tremendously difficult time at first. Um, and it would be just as difficult. Well, it's going to be much harder to be an outsider government than to be an outsider opposition. And, yeah, and so, you know, my worry would be that, that, um, that Labour, you know, Labour needs to um, adapt itself. Labour needs to prepare now for being a government not just a popular opposition yeah. and you know what I would in some ways what I would like to see from Corbyn would be you know, would be policies that are really challenging that are maybe not just the kind of you know we're going to give you money off your train fare and give you back your student grant or, but, but where we're going to challenge some of the tough stuff you know and I think they, people point to nationalisation as the example of that but actually things like rail nationalisation are pretty mainstream and pretty popular ideas as well but take an issue like social care and how are we going to fund the cost of dementia in old people yeah. it's still 
you know, where are the answers on that? It's still not clear. Um, so, you know, I, I think the risk is that 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 the that, uh, that populism is a very effective way of getting into government, um, but it's very bad way of doing government. And that if you know, I would like to see policies that show Corbyn is thinking about what does it mean to be in government and um, uh, and not just what, is it, what do you need to do to, to win a few extra votes. And I think actually that's what you have to be to get elected. At least that's what you used to have to be. Yeah. And Trump has shown that maybe you don't. Maybe you can win on pure populism alone. So you worked for Tony Blair. You also worked for Gordon Brown, which, I mean, I wasn't working where you were at the time, but I'd noticed a change in the in the weather, in the tone of the way the, the party moved, almost it felt overnight. I mean, infamously, he mistrusted uh, the party machinery. He felt it was a, a Blairite organ. Did he mistrust you? Um, that's an interesting question. I hope not. <laughs> um, uh, I can remember once... I can, I can re- I mean, I can remember. I, I had the, the difficult job I had was that I would bring in bad news always. Uh. Um, I'd be at PMQ's preparation, and I'd be the person coming and saying, you know, "They're saying all these bad things about you." Um, and sometimes he would look at me, and it was, you know, I'd be saying to him, "It's not me saying this to you. <laughs> I'm just telling you what they said." And it'd be that kind of, like, just that glare, and you could see that somewhere at the back of his mind, he was thinking. Are you one of them? <laughs> um, but there were only uh, there were only two of us that stayed uh, when, um, when when Gordon came in. Uh, two special advisors that stayed, and actually Gordon had wanted to keep more of them on, but um, I'd I'd actually given up um, thinking that I was going to be kept on. And um, you know, the, the, Gordon was clearly going to win the leadership contest. Yeah, and. Um, it was after he'd won the leadership contest, um, but not yet that he'd become prime minister. No, well, it wasn't still... really a contest, was it? That was the problem. No, just had to get... that's right. It was a kind of coronation. McDonald didn't meet the threshold. Exactly. And then we'd had to get constituency um, parties to nominate him in some sort of... And I can remember I was... Um, I'd, gi- I'd given up all hope of it, and I was I was at Glastonbury, and uh, <laughs> my phone was ringing. I was kind of somehow managed to get reception on, on the hill, and I was just waking up in the morning, uh, say in the morning, at some point mid-afternoon. <laughs> and um, the least, the least, the least good time to speak to anyone, uh, Glastonbury afternoon after <laughs> a heavy night. And I'd resigned myself to the fact that I, I wasn't getting a job. And, uh, uh, and there was a call saying... Uh, Lothio, uh and uh, he. Uh, I'm not going to do Gordon. Oh, I'll, leave I'll leave that to you. <laughs> you can have a go. And um, and he Theo. wanted me to come work for him. Exactly. <laughs> I'd let you do. Come work for me. Thanks for all you do. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, and it, and it was uh, it was very different um, to working for Tony. And uh, but I ended up with more. I, you know, I, I've been there for some time then, and um, uh, I remember like the first PMQs session it basically lasted a week and i don't know if you remember the first few pmqs that oh he man made, but he basically shaky hand but but he did this thing where he, he it was a smart move and that they'd already decided it before he came in so him and the ads and douglas that he would use the first pmqs just to announce a series of policies mm. or rather council policies so i think the first one super casinos super casinos and there was just a series of things that yeah. typified kind of you know uh, the things that, uh, or, or rather, they wanted to typify, um, you know, Tony Blair's politics, and and to set out as you know, the new brand politics was different. Um, but he also wanted to know absolutely everything there was about government, with the same level of detail that he knew about the treasury. And so the first PMQ's session, the prep session, began on the day that he came into Downing Street, which was uh, Wednesday afternoon. <sighs> And the whole week, the whole week, and we worked through the weekend, and uh, it was grueling and terrifying and uh, impossible, and it was like that for the first few weeks. And and those first few PMQ sessions, we were, you know, this cabinet table is big. Yeah, you, know, you can you know, these days, you know, there's an army of cabinet ministers sitting around it, um, and we would fill it with people who were all kind of super excited about being there and even fizzing with ideas. Yeah. And, this great new dawn and there'd be both the Eds and Douglas and 
other people popping in and out with ideas and, and it was this big party almost and then um you know l- within a year there was me uh the principal private secretary james bowler nicholas howard who is um the, the civil servant who does all the work on pmqs and you know when people talk about the rolls royce of the civil service he's yeah. just fantastic at what he does and has worked for uh gordon and um Tony and John Major and Cameron and, and it's just kind of, uh, it's, it's brilliant and, um, but it was just us and we would sit there and he would sit there and all of that noise and all that excitement was gone oh. and it was this big table and there was just shit that we were bringing in <laughs> you know, we were just saying you know, this other thing's gone wrong this <laughs> thing's gone wrong these MPs, are, you know, there's this coup there's that coup and, and Gordon would would you know would kind of look at us and kind of look over our shoulder wistfully at the people who weren't there you know he'd lost his you know his his advisors were now secretaries of state um uh, but they also weren't there you know in in the early days they were there and and gradually they kind of disappeared i can Um, imagine how that feels for him how does it feel for you did you feel undervalued no um i mean you know all you can do is your job, which is you just got to prepare him. You just like, you know, you've just got to get him ready. He's going to go out at twelve o'clock on Wednesday, no matter what happens. Yeah. Now we can sit here, and you can be a bit, you, you know, take your time. You can be angry about things. That's fine. You can be depressed about things. That's fine. But by twelve o'clock on Wednesday, you need to have the answers to this set of possible questions. You know it, and we know it. So. Yeah. We need to work on it, and we've all you've got, right? If you think that we are not up to it, yeah. we are all you've got. And actually, all you need is the answers. This is a simple game. You know, you, we'll make sure that you know, you know exactly where the difficult issues are with government yeah. policy, where it's going wrong. We're going to use the machinery to make sure that we fix it if we can in time so that you've got a better answer than, they, than they're anticipating. And when it comes to them throwing insults or, at you, well, look, we've got these lines and we think these will work and um but yeah it was hard but um uh it was you know it was uh and he actually kind of went you know, with gordon there were times when he would then turn to um new ministers or secretaries of state and look to them for um for them to be uh, the kind of horse whisperer of pmqs you know the idea was that there was always someone you could get that would be brilliant and we went through a number of different secretaries of state and there'd be a period where for a first couple of weeks they were you know gordon thought this is brilliant this is a fresh air this is exactly what we need pmqs has been going so badly this is the solution and then two weeks later they'd be gone because (laughs) they weren't really making any contribution um but uh but you know we he had some he had, he had some great um PPSs. So the the PPS is a kind of little known role, but it's a really important one. It's basically the backbench MP that acts as the ears and eyes for the Prime Minister. So this is the, the parliamentary members. private secretary, not the that's public, the, that's not, the yeah, private, not not a no. civil servant, an MP who just doesn't really have a formal role in government other than to just act as a kind of um Eyes and ears. Yeah, eyes and ears. A kind of messenger for the PM and those people are really crucial because so much of PMQs is about the people behind you um, on those benches behind you <coughs> Did you ever sit by the way in PMQs to that little box that advisors can sit in so you're actually on the floor of the House of Commons but in that almost not a royal box but almost a dugout behind the speaker's chair and just to the side did you ever get in there? I sat in there every week and Wow! That was, wow! That was just a great privilege and also the, the thing about being a um, the thing about being number 10 because um, the thing about being at number 10 was you could kick people out uh, if you were number 10 you could you could uh, you, you could go in and um, and but sitting in that sitting in that box um, was an incredible place to watch PMQs from you and I got told off a couple of times I got told off once for bantering with someone um you know, the, you've got these MPs. I mean, the corners of the chamber are where you get the noisy MPs. Right. Like, <laughs> and um, I remember Ian Austin, who'd been one of the, he'd been an advisor to Gordon, and, and he was standing there, and, and he was 
he was joking along with me about something. Now, we're supposed to sit in the box and make absolutely no noise. <laughs> and then I ended up, I found myself just chatting with him. And the speaker kind of turned around and gave me a nasty glare. Was that Michael Martin back then? I can't remember who it was. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it might, no, I can't remember. pre I can't remember. Um, I can't remember it, because it might not have been, um, I can't remember who it was. I can't remember which speaker. Um, but yeah, when the part of that was that you were supposed to be there to kind of hand out the notes or to. Um, so there would be times when I would scribble a note on the on a piece of paper and hand it, um, but you couldn't hand it straight to the prime minister. You nice. had to hand it down the line, and they'd pass it down the line, and every single cabinet minister would read it before they passed it <laughs> on to the next person. And I remember there was one time when he'd been asked a question, and um, and uh, and and I and I knew what the the, the the key thing was that if I could just jog this thought in his mind, he will know that's the that's the way to tackle this. And so I ripped a piece of paper out of my folder, and on the back of the folder it got some numbers or facts or figures for another question or something else. And I just wrote in big letters because he's got such bad eyes. I just wrote in big letters the little kind of um, thing that would jog his memory, and then I passed it down the line. And every one of them reads it. And you're just thinking, like, get it to him before he gets the... He needs to get it before he stands up. And um, and then by the time they passed it to him, they turned the piece of paper around. And he picked up this piece of paper, and I could see him looking at it. And then he looked down the line at me and gave me this look of, like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and Because uh, it was completely... It was just, like, sure start figures or something. And I was kind of, like, trying to gesticulate on the other side. Yeah. And um, and actually, he just kind of he just kind of looked at me and didn't. I was just gesticulating wildly, had no idea what I was doing, and he just carried on with the answer he had before. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, he was like, "Why didn't you tell me that?" I said, well, I tried. <laughs> How hard was it being there at the end? Yeah, it's, after the election had been well, the election was not quite lost. Those days of limbo in between. So, well, the very end, I left. I I, I booked my holiday to go on holiday. Where to? The day after the election. Uh, we went to Mallorca. My wife was pregnant. And I also knew, like, this is the end of politics for me. Even if we miraculously win, I, 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 I need to do something else because it's such a it's an intense uh, experience, but it's draining, and um, you know, you, you can't, you can't. Uh, uh, there's only a certain amount of time you can be a special advisor before before it sucks the life out of you. And I think it's a good thing for other people to come in and, and, and change and do that. But um, but there were there were really um, the the bleakest moment was um, after the Mrs Duffy uh, incident, and I remember I was sitting, I was waiting. I mean, because my job in the election campaign was to pretend to be Nick Clegg in the practice session. So Master Campbell would be Cameron, and Gordon would be Gordon, yeah. and I'd be Nick Clegg, and I spent the campaign waiting in the hotel rooms for him to come back. That sounds odd. That's not <laughs> but, but waiting for him to come back and then, and then we'd, um, we, we'd, we'd rehearse because that's what he wanted to do, just keep rehearsing these, these kind of battles, um, uh, uh, these lecterns that we'd have set up in these hotel rooms. And I was in a hotel room with, um, I think it was Joel Benenson, the US strategist, Alistair and me, and we were just watching the TV uh, and we could see it unfurling, and we knew he was coming back. And uh, yeah, that day was was just the toughest. I mean, he was so distraught, you know. And at, at that point, I thought, um, like, he, he he can't go back out again. He can't, um, you know, he, he just can't do any more media. I mean, we may not, you know, he may not recover from this. He was so raw emotionally <sighs> because he felt that he had. Um, that he had damaged the party, you know, he took it so personally. He felt that, you know, he was such angry. He was so angry with himself, but also just he was kind of it was a moment of despair and a moment where he kind of, you know, I think he knew at that point this was over. But also, you know, he was just so upset. You know, it was, it was devastating. And um, and he wanted to carry on doing PM. The, he wanted to carry on doing the the practice session. And um, so, uh, you know, and he. I, he made me stand at a lectern, and I was to stand at a lectern. Yeah, this is a man who's, you know, who's like, uh, you know, King Lear on the heath. At this point. And um, and and wanted us to attack him, and that was that was really bleak. Um, and then we did that for 
a minute or two, just like kicking him around while he was down, and um, and then we persuaded him to go to bed, and and, and actually, the when you look at the performance he gave at the last leadership debate, uh, it it was probably his best, given where expectation had been. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he picked himself up, you know, you look at the speech that he gave at the end of the campaign around um, at, at the um, at the Methodist Citizens Church. UK, you know, there was a phenomenal. Point where People were chanting his name at that he event. Kind of, you know, he, there was something where you know he found um, that this is what I'm for, and this yeah. is what I stand for, and I don't care what you think. This is what I'm. This is what I believe, and that was, um, you know, it, 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 so he did. He did kind of find something towards the end, but that moment was 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 bleak and tough, and uh, yeah, I was I was ready for a holiday. But I remember him um, uh, getting hold of me. He wanted. I was just about to get on the plane. He was like, "I need, I need some Lib Dem. I need, I need some information on the Lib Dems." And I was like, I'm, "You know, EasyJet flight. He's <laughs> ready to I depart. can't do that anymore. I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm checked out already." Um, yeah, it was such an emotional period that because he's. I think it, the the intro of Brown at ten. Selden says he's the most psychologically complex individual to ever hold the office of. Prime Minister. Certainly in my lifetime, that's true. I was well Prime Minister, I've never researched that. It'd be very hard to, to take a judgment call on. But there was something... What was odd about God was the intense melancholy about him, which really comes across in, the, in, in those stories, but capable of intense brilliance. I mean, his speech on the Scottish independence referendum was like a, almost like a comeback. It was like seeing the Stone Roses again. There was something that people fell back in love with that was genuine brilliance that he possessed. But I also think if you look at you know his achievements as Chancellor and then again the way that he led the world, um, which isn't too big a claim, and he got yeah. mocked. Saved the world, yeah. Save it for suggesting he'd saved the world. But you know, you ask any um, political leader from the era when the financial crash struck, Gordon was so far ahead, so quick ahead of everyone else in grasping the scale of it, what needed to be done, the importance of the world acting together. Um, and taking risks and making big decisions, and you know, we've paid the cost of the financial crash uh, ever since. But it would have been so much greater had it been someone with less substance, less understanding, less grip than Gordon. You know, when Gordon is convinced that he knows what needs to be done, you just can't stop him because um, he's not. You know, I mean, he's a man of great profundity and great intellectual power but he was also a phenomenal campaigner and as he moved to chancellor and moved to prime minister he moved away from some of that but yeah. a lot of the great campaigns that that tony and gordon run were uh, gordon was the economic ideas behind it the campaigning machinery behind it. a lot of that was gordon's as well so would you ever go back into politics what about did you ever did you ever dream about running for office no I've, well i probably did once dream of running for office but i think i've long since um th- those dreams have long since turned to nightmares <laughs> um uh, and um but that, in a way it worries me that i think it's probably less desirable to be a, a an mp now or a councillor now than it's ever been um and i wish that wasn't the case um, but um, yeah, maybe I would go back into politics. So if if there was something I could help for cause I believed in, um, then I would do that. Um, but uh, right now, I'm quite happy uh, being out of it. So if Jeremy Corbyn's advisors are listening, well, if they are cool, I'd be surprised if they are listening. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm I'm not sure how much I could I could help them or whether they would want me inside the tent. But you know, I am a Labour man and. Uh, I was still part of the Labour government and Tory won. Theo, you're a, a wizard on Twitter. It's been a pleasure picking your brain for an hour. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much. Thanks. There you go, Theo Bertram. How hypnotic was that? It was a really special experience. I, I know Theo from, from having worked with the party and carried on uh, our, our friendship on Twitter, but... It, you realise when you've worked in politics, everyone has had a different experience of it, and everyone learns different lessons. And I thought that great phrase, the politics of the photocopier, brilliant way to distill quite a simple idea, but what it says about the psychology of people in politics and the way that they behave. And actually, what, what really struck me about someone so wise and, and academic 
is that a lot of his lessons are, are practical about knowing how to get through Parliament. What's the quickest route to Downing Street? Where can you get mobile reception? In my experience, they were definitely the things. They were the assets as a member of staff. And it's fascinating to hear someone who worked at the very top really say that they are amongst, amongst the most important things. He has a great gift as well for making the whole thing sound like a happy accident, like he was just in the right place at the right time and very modest about what are huge achievements and a, and a, and a glittering career. But you get the sense that he's totally motivated by his politics and wanted to make the world a better place and just a very matter-of-fact approach to his work, which, of course, was encyclopedic uh, and done with real skill. It was a pleasure talking to him. I think that's the longest I've ever spoken to Theo, and I would certainly love to have him back in the future. There's so much more that I'd like to, to talk to him about. But here it is, the new weekly political party podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed this first episode in this style. As I said at the start, the live shows are still every month, and my next guest is the newly promoted deputy chair of the Conservative Party, James Cleverly. In the meantime, you can follow Theo on Twitter. He's at Theo Bertram. Uh, and you can tweet me at Matt Ford. And you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. If there's anything that Theo said that inspired you or something that you wanted to uh, join in on or if it, it, it sparked a memory or it, in any a reaction of any sort is legitimate. Uh, so, so do get in touch. Now, I had announced that the first guest this new weekly show was going to be Owen Jones, and it was, but um, sadly on the night we were due to record, Owen Jones's dad, Rob, um, who'd been very ill for a while, um, was, uh, we now know about, to pass away, and he, and he sadly died a, a day or two later, which is something that uh, I can't imagine uh, the grief that Owen's feeling, and um, something that I haven't had to go through, so I I can't truly um, understand the magnitude of the, of the sorrow and the grief that he's experiencing at the moment. Um, I know a lot of listeners to this show are, are fans of Owen. Some of you will know him personally. Uh, he's a top bloke and someone I get on very well with. And uh, I, my thoughts are here uh, with him. And he will do the show at some point in the future, I'm sure. But I hope you totally understand that uh, it just wasn't possible to, to record with him that first week. So we'll do Owen another time. We will all look forward to it. Um, but thank you for downloading, and uh, I hope you enjoy the next episode. And I hope you enjoyed this. See you next week. Ta-ra. <laughs>